You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 136. Yes. So, and we have some really good feedback off of episode 134, which we had with Dr. Peter Groffman, who is our guest again today. Our part two. This and, is like uh, our first part two. Yeah. Uh, so, no, we did a part two. Well, I guess we did the part two with deer, but it yeah, was a different guest. It was a different guest, It yeah. was like the other side of the, the story, which ended up being the same side of the story. And, and, and we hadn't planned on... Doing two parts, it's just that we covered so much in the first episode that we didn't get to over half of the topics that we wanted to talk about. So I know we kind of covered lawns and their effect and chemical use, Mm -hmm. and we really wanted to talk also about climate change and solutions. We wanted to to leave on a positive note of how we can approach Mm -hmm. all the things that we've discussed and kind of how we move forward. So Yeah, and before we get into that, we do have an announcement to make as well, and that's uh, and we did it before where yeah. we were hiring someone, and um, we have a couple more positions that opened yes. up, so you can find those on our Facebook page, and then we have them on Indeed as well. But uh, we're looking for a crop production specialist and uh, a seed salesperson, and um, I think there's a handful of other things that are on there as well. So uh, probably the best place to do it is actually find it on our Facebook. There's a job section on the page, and uh, if you're interested in, in working with us, that's a great place to find what positions are open those positions you'd actually work with tom and i so yeah i don't well, know if that's a friend. plus or a minus. i don't yeah i don't know if that's a, a good advertisement yeah. there friend for the, <laughs> the job maybe a negative <laughs> so yeah but with that let's get into to what we said we were going to talk about today when we wrapped up the last episode we were talking a little bit about climate change so why don't we start there uh, Dr. Groffman, what are your opinions on climate change? And you have uh, about a minute and a half to get this. <laughs> a, full, a full 90 seconds. Right? Just no, I'm just, I'm just, you can take as long yeah, so, as you want. Yeah, so I'm an environmental scientist, and, and climate change is the, is the overarching challenge of our, of our, of our, of our time. Um, and you know, and I come, come, come to this from a pretty positive perspective in that Environmental science, at least in my view, has been very has been very successful as a problem-solving discipline over the last 50 or 60 years ago. So if you think about it, uh, we've been able to identify problems, uh, propose solutions to those problems, uh, have those solutions implemented, uh, and then and then track them and to see are those solutions working. And and you know, my favorite example is is the bald eagle, right? So when I was a kid, there were no bald eagles, and now I see bald eagles on a routine basis. Um, and you know, and and so science, environmental scientists are able to I, I identify a problem, you know, with, with DDT and food chain biomagnification. They proposed a solution. The solution was implemented. We, we have eagles back. You know, our, our our air is cleaner everywhere. Our water is cleaner. You know, just just about everywhere. We have conservation plans. So we are pretty good at 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 um, at diagnosing problems and and then and then studying about solving them. And now climate change is really, really the, really the challenge of our time. Um, again, the problem has been diagnosed. The solution has been proposed. And we seem to be implementing it, right? So, you know, we, 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 if you, if people really do in the different states and different countries, uh, you know, follow our plans for decarbonization of the economy, you know, in 2050, we may be in a much, much different place than we are now. 
um, in terms of the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere and our future trajectories for climate change. And so I, I maybe I have a an unrealistically optimistic view of things, but, but I, I think that we really have made some progress at kind of turning the ship um, away from fossil fuels. Um, and that's uh, so, you know, we'll, and we'll know in 20 or 30 years where we're really turning the ship now. But but certainly it is the overarching challenge of our time. And and, and uh, it's very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant to deal with. You know, it involves changing a lot of things. Um, but I have some hope that we're starting to make those changes. I actually saw a bald eagle yesterday morning on my drive to work. It flew right over Route 295 on my way in. I mean, it's so, really something. It's, it's you know, you see them, there was... There was a, a video of a bald eagle diving and 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 picking off a seagull in, in the lake in the reservoir in Central Park, you know, in New York, in New York wow. City, and it's really something. It, it's I've seen more bald eagle this year than I have combined the rest of my lifetime. Yes, yeah. which is which is pretty amazing. So, yeah. as you were talking, I know we we always have a list of questions, and just as you were talking, it it made me kind of look at things in a different perspective. And we were talking about urban and suburban landscapes, and originally. The question was how have they affected our climate over time? But then as you were talking about climate change as a whole, is that even that big of a picture of, of a cause of climate change or just like a small contributor or even worldwide? Is it more of a problem somewhere else than it is here? Yeah, so so and it's a very good question as to how have our suburban landscapes affected climate change. And, and um, you know, one of the things I always like to say is, you know, if we all – lived in a 700, 700 square foot apartment in the Bronx, uh, our impact on the environment would be a lot less, right? So if you think about this, the, probably the biggest contribution of suburbanization to climate change has been the, the sprawl that it's caused and, and the roads and then the fossil fuel consumption associated, associated with, that, with that sprawl. So if you think about people living in New York City, most of them don't have cars, um, they live in very small spaces stacked up on top of everybody else. Um, so they don't use a lot of heat. They don't use a lot of electricity. The distribution of manufactured goods is very efficient in cities. And so there's people have come to realize, especially old-fashioned, dense cities, where there's a lot of public transport, the per capita uh, effect on the, on the on climate is much less for, for, for people living in tiny apartments in New York City. Gotcha. Um, and so suburbanization where 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 and this was this was my parents, right? So my you know my parents were 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 Brooklyn kids, and uh, and when they started to have a family, they wanted a yard, you know, and they wanted to, and they were very excited about living in in, in suburban New Jersey, um, and 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 I you know I think I you know I I, I honor that they they built a community and it was, and it was great fun for them, but uh, ooh, their impact on the environment was a lot higher than it was. Um, when they lived in a tiny, the tiny apartment in Queens when I was a kid. So, so, and so, and so, so I guess there's, there's two things, but to me, the overarching thing is just the structure of the landscape. And suddenly we're all driving to work. Um, we have big houses. we use a lot of fuel to heat and cool those houses. Um, and so that's the, the kind of structural impact, which I think is much, much larger than the impact we have from running the lawnmower. Right. So we run the lawnmower and, and certainly, if I would have known as a teenager about climate change, it would have really added to my list of excuses for not mowing. Because, well, come on, we're saving the planet. Don't you think we should mow every three weeks? Um, of course, now, of course, I would talk about pollinators and letting letting the grasses bloom. But 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 I think I think there is there is a climate impact of 
of of our activities in, in, the, in the landscape, um, I think it's small compared to the structural ones. Okay. Yeah. I remember you, you just sparked the memory for me, but I remember I was putting together a presentation uh, for a landscape architecture firm about why it's important to consider native plants in, in the landscape. And um, I just had some statistics that I looked up and I used my dad. He was 65 at the time. I was 68. But uh, so he's born in 1954. And I was like, the population of the U.S. is basically doubled in his lifetime. From 150 some thousand to now over 300, or excuse me, 150 some million to over 300 million, and then um, at that same time, the average person per household has actually decreased. I think from up above five, and now it's like hovering around four. So you have way more, twice as many people taking up more space, uh, or significantly more space per person. And um, you know, it's just interesting when you talk about, yeah, you have a smaller footprint and then you think about cities and the impervious surface is higher in cities, but per person is way, way lower than my family of three that's living in a, a big house with all this lawn. So no, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. It does. And it, it um, th- th- that number that you cited is really one that people talk about a lot that the house, the number of households has grown, but the size mm-hmm. of the households has, 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 has gotten smaller so the amount of land occupied or affected by individuals has has has, go, has gone up quite a bit. Yeah. Well, given and, the, given those numbers, how how much worse has that situation become over the last fifty years? Like we know that it's doubled. We're taking up more space. How has that affected climate change? And if we were to continue that pace on for another fifty years, where where would we be? Is it even sustainable at that point? Right. So it, it's varied quite a bit. Right. So um, and so in many parts of the country, the wave of suburban sprawl is over. Um, and in other parts, it's still accelerating. So if you think you go into the south and the west, mm-hmm. there are, there are re- really large areas of, 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 of suburbanization. And, we've, and as part of the, our research group that's been studying this ecological homogenization across the country. So we've got these projections of just how much new lawn there's going to be across, across the country based on how much suburban development, how many houses, how much lawn per house. And, and so there, so, so there, there was explosive growth in the fifties and the sixties that has slowed some, and especially in the developed parts of the East and the middle West, that there's not that much of that occurring now, but in other parts of the South and the West, there's still relatively explosive growth uh, of, 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 of suburbs. And, um, you know, what's interesting, so we've been working in Baltimore for, for 25 years on long-term ecological research, and and, um, and at one point, uh, we were talking with some of the county officials about suburban sprawl, we were saying, you know, we're very excited to do this suburban sprawl work, and, and they said, you know, it's great, that's great, that's great that you want to do that, but, you know, sprawl is over in Baltimore County, it's been over for about 10 years, Um and, and it highlights that scientists were oftentimes, and I said this last time we talked, that scientists were oftentimes a little behind what's maybe five or ten years behind what's going on on the ground, which is why it's really fun to talk to people like you who are actually planting plants in actual people's yards, and so you learn what's going on. And what's going on in many places, so and this is particularly true in, in Baltimore County, which is, they have a pretty sophisticated approach to environmental management. They're doing, instead of sprawl, they have a, they have an urban growth boundary so that, so that, that there it, it limits the, the, the density and they're doing redevelopment. So there's a bunch of developments from the fifties and the sixties 
There's shopping malls that people don't want to go to anymore, strip malls that people don't want to go to anymore. And so they're they're scraping those off and building high density residential, high density commercial with public transportation. And so in some places, they're actually redeveloping the suburbs to be more sustainable or to have less of environmental impact. And that's really kind of encouraging because some of the, as we were figuring stuff out in the 50s and the 60s, you, know, you had really bad impacts from stormwater. You had bad impacts from just, you know, parcelization of the landscape. So now we can address some of that, you know, with some redevelopment and, and densification with transit, advanced stormwater controls. Um, and you hope that some of the new suburbs that are being built in the south and the west, I think they're using better technology for um, for the way they plan and, and build those landscapes. Have, have we have we really learned uh, enough to to make a better or less of an impact as we move forward? Like I remember probably 15 years ago attending a conference where they were talking about a planned community and it was um, pervious pavement and, and water collection. It was really ahead of its time and I haven't seen a lot more of that. Like is it – is it still just a little bit more the same or, or following regulations as the regulations get a little bit better, better or is it – has it – we're starting to see some progression? Well, I, I think, I think we, we've definitely seen some progression just because the, the municipalities have a pretty strong regulatory um, – there's a pretty strong regulatory structure in, in particular to control stormwater. And so, and so the way we approach stormwater has just gotten more sophisticated. For a while, it was just you'd build these big detention basins, which people didn't like. But there's been this explosion of creativity in, in what we call green infrastructure or green stormwater infrastructure. So the EPA amended the Clean Air Act in 2007 to allow the use of green infrastructure, which is a mixture of, net, of, of technological figures, but, but the natural features as well. It's kind of hybrid feature. And they said you can use those if you if you can capture the stormwater, and then but it also provides ancillary benefits, right? So again, there's a lot of native plants and green stormwater infrastructure, and it provides infiltration, it provides cooling, it provides aesthetics. Um, that that development, and so so in that sense, and I always say that green infrastructure, it's the point stimulated just a burst of creativity among the engineers, the designers, the landscapers. It's like, okay, you're going to give me, you're going to give me a big chunk of the landscape to put plants in it. All right. I'll, I'll think, and to put soils and plants and, and this kind of hybrid structures. And then just one other thing I saw. So there's a newsletter. We work with the USGS in, um, in, in Maryland. And they had a newsletter. They had a, I think the town is Clarksville. It was a large development and they use it as a test case to address your question. Can we really do this right? Right? And so they applied a suite of advanced stormwater uh, controls, and um, and to, and then and then they then they look really hard at the hydrology, right? So you know, you, like a stream, you know, I think I think many people are familiar with an urban stream versus a forested stream, and you know, ur, you know, forested streams it rains, it takes a long time for the water to ooze its way through the forest and into the stream, where in if, in a in a city, it goes right into the stream and you get the, the flashy hydrology. And so they wanted to design this suburban development, Clarksville, to, to, to mimic uh, forested hydrology. And I think they did it. I think they came pretty awesome. close. Awesome. I love seeing that. Oh, yeah. And it's and especially in New Jersey, in counties along the ocean, we've seen a big push for basin retrofitting, uh, making them green infrastructure. I know the New Jersey DEP has been offering a lot of grants in a lot of these areas t- to improve the watershed of 
of these counties to make them a little more impactful. So it's I like seeing that we see that local. We just weren't sure nationally if if that same thing was occurring. And on the coast, you know, they have the real they have they monitor this quality of the water for swimming very very intensively, right? So it used to be if you had a heavy rainfall, you were going to get um, you know E. coli or other sewage bacteria into the water, and then the beach would be closed, and there'd be a lot of wringing of hands and. That was a powerful driver to improve some of the stormwater controls along the coast. I mean the old rules for civil engineering were kind of collect the water as quickly as possible, get it out as quickly as possible. Right. Not didn't really take into consideration of the erosion or the sediment that it was carrying with it. So it's nice yeah. to see that those ideas have changed. Um, but as you, you get – speaking of ideals changing, you had brought up an article – uh, before we start it, that you said was in the New York Times this morning. Maybe now's a good time to discuss. Well, I would, I would be glad to talk about this article for okay. a very long time because I think the title <laughs> of the article was something like "He Fought the Law and the Law Lost." So I don't know if you all remember there was old rock and I fought the law and the law and the law won. Um, so it was a homeowner association. So so it was a it's a story of a of a of a couple in a, in, in a in a. A neighborhood in in Maryland with a homeowner association, and they sw- switched from their lawn to to na- native plants. Um, I think they had very little grass, a lot of native plants, and the neighbor was unhappy about it, um, and was kind of quietly unhappy about it. Like they didn't have like a lot of discussion about it, and so eventually uh, they got sued by the homeowner association, um, and then they sued back, and uh, and it went to it went to to court. And and they won, right? So and so it, it, it and it's potentially a high impact loss. This is in the today's New York Times, and I don't have the details all that well in my head. But it's potentially it was interesting at a couple of levels. So so the article made a case that it it suggests that that the homeowner association that, that does not have jurisdiction over what you plant in your yard, right? And so many people live in neighborhoods where there's a homeowner association, and and they're fairly specific about what the landscaping should be. Um, and so these people challenge that, and it looks like they, they might have won to be able to, to have that. But so so that, that that's a legal framework, and homeowner associations are an interesting are an interesting um, topic. But you know, we talked about this a lot last time, and, and so we've done a lot of work on the, the social relationships within neighborhoods, and like what are people hoping to achieve in their yards? And one of the big things that people are hoping to achieve in their yards is social cohesion. Like, so I, I live in a neighborhood. I, I really like my neighbors. Um, I want my neighbors to be happy with my property. And I know that if my property is sloppy, like if the paint's peeling off the, off the house and there's a, you know, the yard looks untended, they're, they're going to be unhappy, legitimately unhappy. And so many people are doing, I like to say they're doing the, the, the least amount that they need to do in order to avoid pissing off their neighbors. <laughs> um, and, and so this story, to me, is shows the, a real failure of social cohesion, right? So, and they all seemed like nice people um, that didn't want to irritate each other, but but there was some failure there, right? So 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 the neighbor, so so they 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 the people who 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 transitioned their yard to a wildlife friendly yard, they I don't think they wanted to irritate their neighbor, but but and and they said we always got along with the neighbor, we didn't know the neighborhood didn't like it. But there was some communication failure there where could they have talked to the neighbor and said, well, here's what we're trying to achieve over here with these wild plants. How could we make it look better so that so that so that you know so that you'll be happy with it? Um, 
And so, because ultimately the, the couple that won, they spent $60,000 in legal fees. Wow. So that's a, that's, that's a failure of social cohesion, right? Yeah. In many cases, lawsuits are failures of social cohesion of some, of some type. Um, so this is a story, like in my academic circles, I, I think I had five different people sent me this story uh, this morning saying, oh, we're going to have to talk about this one. Because it really <laughs> illustrates much of what you all are talking about on your show and what I'm doing in my research is what do people want? You know, what do they, what do they want? What are they hoping to achieve and how can they do that, um, achieve their personal goals while also maintaining social cohesion in the neighborhood? And, and you'd like to be able to do that without $60,000 in legal. No, I agree. And it's, I, I, I agree that a lot of that is communication of what they were trying to accomplish. Um, cause there is a little more understanding. No one wants to live next door to the messy house that, that's letting it fall apart. You start thinking of property values and things like that. And I know, at one point, I lived in Delaware, which doesn't have townships. It's pretty much all homeowners associations, and those rules were made up who knows how long ago, and it was to keep everything neat and tidy so that everyone's property value was good and no one was creating a mess or attracting rats or – you know. and I understand that. But then you see places in the Midwest in the Chicago area creating developments where they encourage meadows, mm-hmm. um, and they want that. So it's a different way of thinking. And it's just how do you get everyone on that same plane of thinking that way yeah. or making it yeah. acceptable? Yeah. And so and so and and that, and that's a you know it's kind of a broader issue, but people need to need to be talking with talking with each other, especially if we're in a homeowners association, right? Just the yeah. name. We're homeowners. We're in an association. We should say what are we hoping to achieve, and how can we make every everyone happy? So to me, that's the lesson of this of of, of the story. I mean, the other lesson of the story is that, is, is that it also goes on that there's just real interest in Wildlife Federation certified yards and native plants, and, and the, the interest appears to be growing, and, and that's, that's very exciting. Now, we talked – you know, one of the things that we talked about in the last episode was just raking your leaves up to make neighbors happy and, and doing that mullet effect, as you said, where you're, you're keeping it nice out front and maybe a little, little more wild in the back. Business um, in the front, party in the back. Yeah. <laughs> And, and we talked where leaves go last episode, but how important is leaf cover or leaf litter just to to insect populations? Well, so in, in particular to, to soil insects, and there there are a lot. I don't know. People don't oftentimes don't think that much about soil insects, but there but there's there's this whole suite of beetles and mites and and and, and earthworms and other. Uh, soil organisms that are very important for the cycling of organic matter and for the health of of, of the landscape and and they do indeed like a bunch of leaves and so and so um and one of the scientists we work with um and maryland is a real 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 expert on this and and so if if you can get areas in the yard where you can accumulate some leaves um that then you're going you're going to have some benefit for to the to the soil fauna you know and and so many people have been working pretty hard on 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 can we keep all the leaves on our property um, you know, to avoid having raking in, it's partially um, my laziness principle, which I really think laziness drives a lot of what we do. <laughs> yep. And um, and so so they're trying to come up with ways to to chip, you know, to mulch up the leaves. So they've got these, and 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 there's been some very nice experiments that suggest that if you chop up the leaves rather than raking them off, um, then you're adding a bunch of carbon to the soil, which improves the quality of the soil. You're keeping the leaves on the property. You're saving. The work you did in moving the leaves off, you're saving the work that's and the fossil fuel that's associated with transporting the leaves somewhere else. 
Um, so to me, leaves are like a, a real frontier topic in, in, in urban ecology. And, 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 and like in urban ecology, it's, it's a social ecological question. Right? So what do people think about leaves? Um, what are they hoping to achieve with the way they manage leaves? And like many people really think the lawn looks sloppy if there's, if there's leaves on the lawn. And so they're going to want to rake them but maybe they can compost them in the back instead of sending them off to the landfill. Or maybe yeah. we can chop them up in a way that becomes, that becomes, uh, you know, more, more aesthetically uh, appealing. So it's definitely one of those issues where, where people have um, some, some ideas about, about environmental benefits, you know, of, of these, but then there's the aesthetic drivers. And, and I'll give you an example of this. So when I went to graduate school, this is many, many decades ago, I studied no-till agriculture, which at the mm-hmm. time was a, was a state of the art, a, a um, approach to reducing soil erosion, right? So you, you leave a bunch of, instead of plowing the soil, you just leave the residue on the soil and the residue protects the soil from erosion. And there was a huge problem in getting farmers to adopt no-till because it didn't look right. They were used to seeing clean tilled fields and they were like, well, there's all, and they used to call the residue, used to call trash. They said, I can't leave the trash on, on the field. Mm-hmm. And there has been a remarkable switch in that perception over time. So now, Farmers are, are feel that the field looks naked if there's no cover on it. Like so now, like the, the, the it's like oh well, it's got to have cover on it. Like it's like a blanket, you know. And so and so there's been an incredible perceptual shift in what a, a field should look like. Um, and, and 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 to me, it's a great illustration that that things can change. And and it's the same thing with 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 our with our lawn with our yards. I love dandelions, right? And, and my neighborhood is a blaze of yellow in April. But other people, ooh, they don't want dandelions. And I think it's going to be the same thing with leaves. Like, mm-hmm. like I kind of like having leaves scattered about the lawns in a different pile, but other people don't. And so, so to me, this is a, a topic that, that's going to – I think it's, a, it's an important topic in urban ecology. We're only going to solve it with this social ecological approach where we talk to people. But what are they, what are they, perce- what, what are they perceive? What do they value? How do their perceptions and values influence their actions? And then we mix that with some science and we'll come up with, with something good to do. You know, the funny thing is as we talk about these issues every episode and we move forward and it, our ideologies change of what we think, you know, I often wonder what's the goal? Like what's the ultimate goal? Like not an ideal world goal. Like no one plants any exotic plant material. We only do natives. There's no grass. Like, but is there a number? Is there a a percentage that I don't know what that answer is? It's it's kind of like would we love to see more native insects and pollinators and a little bit more natives and decrease what's happening in our climate? Well, so we can, scientists that's what we can do. we we can we can contribute to this whether it's going to be helpful or not, but we can certainly come up with some numbers. So and so so in our surveys, and we talked about this last time, we we asked people a question: Are you satisfied with the quality of the na- of the of the environment in your neighborhood? And that includes the lawns, the parks, the public spaces. Are you satisfied with the quality of the environment? So that's one score. And the scores for us, we did this in six cities. So we 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 called up, um, I think it was sixteen hundred people in, in Boston, Baltimore, Miami, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Phoenix, and Los Angeles, and we had comparable neighborhoods. In each of those cities, we had urban, suburban, and exurban neighborhoods, and wealthy and less wealthy neighborhoods. We had rather detailed controlling for similar neighborhood sites across the country. Okay, sixteen hundred people in, in all those cities, 
are you satisfied? And we asked him 30 questions, but one of the questions was, are you satisfied with the quality of the natural environment in your neighborhood? And the scores were really surprisingly high to us. They all hovered around eight, eight out of 10. Um, and it was very similar in, in all the cities, a little higher in Minneapolis, St. Paul, because they're okay. just nice, you know, in Minnesota. <laughs> And that they were a little higher there, but for the most part, they were they were quite high. They were they were they were higher in wealthy neighborhoods than less wealthy neighborhoods. They were higher in exurban than in suburban than in urban neighborhoods, which makes sense because people move to suburbs and exurbans for for environmental amenities. But the 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 thing that these results suggested to us is was that people are pretty happy with what they've got. They're achieving, or at least at least they're achieving something that what they want, and that's a very important result. Because if we would like people to do something different, we're going to have to deal with the fact that they're happy with what they have now. So if we would like to get more insects, we would like to get more pollinators, we would like to restore the community of native prairie birds to, to Minneapolis, so we're going to have to see who's interested in doing something different. Um, but I think we need to understand um, why they're happy with what they have. And, and so can we continue to keep people happy? Because if we can keep, keep people happy, you know, and I, I think there's great potential for this um, in terms of if we set some environmental goals like for native native birds or native plants or native insects, I think we could we we could we we could we, there's quite a bit of room for progress there. We just have to make sure people people continue to achieve what they hope to achieve. For for lack of a better word, is. Is some of the happiness based on ignorance for just not knowing what you don't know? Like if you don't know that, say, there's less monarchs occurring every year, or you don't know that your native bird population is going down, you could be happy without really knowing kind of what the big picture is. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, it, you know, so we also did um, – we also did – you know, the, the surveys are very – a very kind of coarse instrument. It's just, you know, you ask a couple of questions on the survey. And the other thing that we did is we, we, in each of our six cities, we had about 10 or 20 homeowners that we spent an hour with okay. wandering around the yard. We spent an hour with them. What, what have you done over here? What were you hoping to achieve? Are you happy with what you got? And these were much more informative, these surveys, um, because you, you got much more detailed information from people. And, and, and the social scientists are able to do this it's fascinating. They call it text analysis. So they record these interviews, and they, and they use computer programs to to extract themes from from these interviews. And so it's kind of a a quantitative approach to qualitative data. But it, they they get themes, and so, and so they were able to determine well what is it that people are so happy about? Like what is it? Yeah. What is it that they want? And and the two big themes that emerged were beauty and uh, and. They didn't call it laziness. I always call it laziness, but it's beauty, low maintenance, right? <laughs> yeah. So people like people really like their yards to look nice, and and it made a lot. I, I read it. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. People really they they want they enjoy that it looks nice, and they but they don't have a lot of time and money, so so ease of maintenance, and and other things like support of native biodiversity, contribution to climate change, those scored much lower in in in, in people's minds, and so. What you say may may be true that is there's more awareness of the loss of native biodiversity. Is there more awareness of effects on climate change, and that might become more of a driver for people. And I think that's what you see in this case of the of the wildlife certified yards. People people are are 
that there's real interest in, in planting these wildlife certified yards, which involve native plants to achieve specific objectives. And so I think, I think you're right that as awareness grows, that then people's, people's perceptions, values, and behaviors will change. Well, I, you know, one of the questions that we had for you was how do we get ecosystem services higher on that priority list mm-hmm. for, for homeowners when they're thinking about landscaping? And I know the more that I learn, the more it shapes what I do. My my views over the last two years have shifted. And just even in preparation for our first uh, conversation on the podcast, and I had read about some of your research with snow coverage in colder climates and what happens if you don't have that, like I knew climate change – is a real thing and what's affecting, but I hadn't thought about that. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so yeah. now, yep. if you could discuss that a little bit as well, yep. uh, so our listeners know what yes. I'm talking about. So just say a little bit about, about how to, but just go back to this idea of getting ecosystem services on people's radar screen or, or how to get people to think about that and value that. It's something we think about a lot in science because, because our, our record of science communication is not so great, right? So scientists are really good um, at telling people what they ought to do, right? You ought to, you ought to exercise more. You ought to eat better. You, you, you ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to. And that kind of nagging, you know, it doesn't work any better with the general public than it works at home. You know, I mean, you, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I had teenage kids and they, I would nag them and they, you know, I said the man could nag the paint off the wall, and <laughs> and and it didn't really it didn't really do any good. And so and so and so so we take we learned that science communication is going to be much more of a dialogue and much more of a framing. And boy, we've learned some interesting things, right? So so like, why has there been this interest in in pollinators and native plants and achieving these biodiversity goals in in, in these neighborhoods? It's, it's not really clear to me. Like, so there were a couple of articles in the paper about how bees. We're, we're disappearing. Boy, I heard about that. A lot of people were really concerned about that. Now, why did that? Why did that strike such a chord with people? And so, and so, we need to spend a lot of time listening and looking to see what it is that really affects people's perceptions and values, um, rather than just lecturing them. You know, and again, as, as scientists, we really have, have have. I think I think the message is getting through across science that. We need to spend more time listening and dialoguing with people if we really would like to change change their behavior. Because the nagging, we all know, it doesn't work at home. No, it doesn't work out in the community either. Um, so that's so that so so that's and and I think I, I do think um, we're making progress. Um, and and and, and just because you see it, because the interest in in what you're doing and the, just the presence of this podcast is, is you know, it suggests well, that people are doing it. When we started doing this, we were maybe the second or third native plant podcast at the time. There's so many more. And even when we started doing articles, we would kind of have to really search to to get articles for every other week. And now I'm choosing from ten or twenty every week. Oh yeah, yeah. From from big publications. It's, so. So let's talk a little bit about winter climate change because that okay. was one of the topics yeah. you want to talk about. So, so, so I've been doing winter climate change research mostly in forests uh, since the late '90s, and, and I work at a long-term ecological research site in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, um, where people have been doing detailed research since the '50s. It's a site that's that's managed by the USDA Forest Service, um, and you know, if you manage forests, you're really interested in snow because the snow melts and then fills the reservoirs uh, in the in it fills the reservoirs in the spring, and it's very important for drinking water. And so the Forest Service has been collecting data on snow since the 50s uh, up in Hubbard Brook. And, and it's not surprising, but um, 
it, 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 the amount of snow, actually it still snows about the same that, as it used to, um, but we get much more of the snow comes in big storms. Uh, and the, the, it doesn't last as long, right? Because it's warmer, so it melts faster. So the days of snow cover, days that the ground is covered with snow are less. Um, the depth of the snowpack is less. Uh, and so there's been this, there's this decline in snow. One thing that's it's very, and this is very interesting in, in coastal New Jersey, um, the, I, th- I think it's like six or eight of the 10 biggest snowstorms have a, you know, over the last 150 years have occurred in the last 10 or 20 years or so, right? So these monster coastal storms, right? And so, you know, you think about it, you get these monsters, like we're going to have a big nor'easter this week. And you think, well, this is a good old-fashioned snowstorm. But it's not. These are like these new supercharged climate-driven monsters out there, and they deliver a lot of snow. So we'll get, we'll get, if, if, so if you get, if you get two 30-inch snowstorms, that's 60 inches of snow. It's the same 60 inches that you used to get all over the course of the season. So we realized that snow was changing and, and, and that the climate was actually changing in the winter more than it was in the summer. And this has a, a couple of really important implications for, for landscaping and for forests, one of which we talked about last time was, was uh, the spread of pests, both native pests and exotic pests. So currently in the Northeast, where we have hemlock woolly delgy, which is killing hemlock trees. It was introduced in Virginia was never supposed to get to New York or to Massachusetts because it's killed by low winter temperatures. But our low winter temperatures have just disappeared. So it used to get to minus minus 25 Fahrenheit in this part of New York where I live, maybe every five years or so, five to 10 years. It get really, minus 25 is really cold. And so it kills a lot of things, a lot of things, they, and, then, and it, it limits their, their northward distribution. But it hasn't been minus 25 since 1994. Wow. And so things like the hemlock woolly adelgid and um, the, the uh, Asian tiger mosquito, um, a bunch of these pests are spreading, and a bunch of the exotic earthworm species are spreading the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, that, and that was a big surprise. It's like you said, you read about winter climate change. You see, gee, I didn't think about that. And so climate change has some things that are, are hard to study, like, okay, it's going to get warmer, it's going to get wetter, it's going to get drier. But then it has some things that are really hard to study, like the, the loss of the extreme cold temperatures and then the changes in snow. So the thing that we saw with the changes in snow was that uh, the soils freeze more. And this is a surprising result in that you're going to get colder soils in a warmer world. So in most years, if you go to Vermont or New Hampshire in the winter, the, there's a there's a foot of snow on the ground or, or three feet of snow on the ground and the soil underneath that is not frozen so it's like an insulating blanket yeah. and the soil it's 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 a constant one degree centigrade or maybe 35 degrees fahrenheit all winter not frozen and it's pretty pretty constant and so there's a lot going on there like there's all these small mammals and there's plant roots and there's all these soil organisms and they're living a pretty happy life and they, they call it the subnivial zone underneath the snow and if you remove the snow cover and it freezes, it's a terrible change for them. It kills the roots of the trees. You have a big, it, it, it kills the, you know, the, the insects and the small mammals, and it just changes the whole dynamics of the ecosystem. Uh, and so that's been a big, uh, that's been a big change. Um, and one thing that's interesting about that is, is that there are many parts of the world that don't have a lot of snow cover, right? So in, in many cases, people said, you know, we said, well, okay, this is happening in New Hampshire, 
And really, you're just kind of making New Hampshire kind of like New Jersey, right? So New Jersey has intermittent snow cover and probably more soil freezing than you do in New Hampshire. And that's true. So there's a transition. There's a change where you're going from one type of ecosystem with where the soil doesn't freeze in the winter to another type of ecosystem where the soil does freeze in the winter. And that's just a big change for our expectations of how the systems are going to behave. And does that make it less biodiverse when that happens? Well, uh, yes, right. So, so what we have in um, maybe less biodiverse or, or, a, di- or a different suite of organisms, and and so and so, like we we do pretty well at thinking about different types of forests. Right. So I have deciduous forests and coniferous forests, and I have temperate forests and tropical forests. Uh, and now I'm having forests. I have forests with you know that are snow covered in the winter, and forests that are not snow covered in the winter. So my expectations for biodiversity and water quality and carbon storage in those different kinds of forests are, are going are gonna, to are gonna change. And so, and so it, it, it's, it's affected our, our expectations. But there are really implications for people's yards, right? So th- then we started applying this. Okay, so what is, what is the, the other thing that was really interesting about winter climate change was um, we started to look at how, how are people adapting to that, right? So in, in the North Country, a lot, of, a lot of economic activities is tied to the winter. So outdoor recreation, Logging. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if you're going to cut trees out of the forest, it's much easier to do it on the snow. You cut the trees down, you slide them out over the snow rather than drag them through the mud. So it affected the forestry industry, affected the maple sugar industry, it affected the downhill skiing industry, affected the cross-country skiing industry, it affected the snowmobiling industry. And uh, and then, then you start to think, okay, well, how is this affecting agriculture and landscaping in these different areas? So this was pretty interesting to us. So so one of the things we, we learned, so as a kid growing up in New Jersey, it was a big treat for us to go ski at Mount Snow, which is the southern, most southernmost area in Vermont. And so I always like to ask students this. I say, so, okay, Mount Snow, how is it open for skiing a certain number of days per winter? Has that, is it open more days in the winter or less than when I was a kid, right? So when I was a kid, it was open some number of days. Now it's open some number of days. Is it more or less now than it was when I was a kid? What do you think? Uh, I'm I'm gonna guess. Well, is it? Are they are they making snow as well? Yeah, they're making so, snow. Yeah. So then I would guess more. A ton more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a yeah. ton more. You know, snow making to me is the classic example of of uh, of um, of, uh, of of of, of a, a relatively straightforward adaptation to making snow. They're open Christmas. You know, when people are ready to ski yeah. and and. And and, they, and not only that, but they make it much more efficiently than they than they used to do it, and and so that's an adaptation. That that's that's not a lot surprising. The other ones that are a little more clever are, like so the cross country ski people, right? We thought they're really going to be in trouble because they can't really yeah. make snow, but they can manage their trails. Like so, we talked with the cross country ski people and with the snowmobile people, and they said, you know, if you go on your trail and take the big rocks out of the trail and you build some bridges over the little streams. You can cross-country ski or snowmobile on a lot less snow than you used to. And we were very impressed with people's adaptation to winter climate change. And I think it's the same thing that we can do. We think about it in urban forestry, so we know the climate's changing. What should we be planning in our urban forests? Or should we be doing assisted migration of more southern species that are, that are likely to do well um, in our forests? And, this, and it's the same thing in our yards, right? So what should we be planning in our yards? Right, so if we realize that the climate has changed both in the winter and the summer, should we be making different decisions about what we recommend for people to plant? And and I think we have great 
opportunities to, to kind of lead the way in adaptation, it's going to have a big effect on our neighborhoods, right? So if we're yeah. interested in our neighborhoods being cool and supporting biodiversity, I think we can we, we have a great capacity for adaptation. And we get asked that question all the time about plant material. Like, should I be planting for what we expect the area to be in 20 years? Should I be taking some more southern seed source and, and moving it forward? You know, is that the answer? No one really has a – Oh, I think it's it's different for every plant, really, because yeah, yeah. you think about um, something like a, a black-eyed Susan, which is a fairly short-lived plant. Well, that probably doesn't matter <laughs> that much. But you start talking into, like, white oak is a great yeah. example that can live 300-some years. Yeah, something that is from a seed source here, and now you're talking about the potential of climate change and the U.S. Forest Service yeah. is actually working on a map with seed collection zones and saying, hey, if you want, I remember the heat map, and it basically would adjust. You could set the dates and say, I want something that's going to, if I want something to live here 100 years from now, where do I need to get the seed from? And it would show you where, what they expected to have a similar climate now as where your desired planting location right. would in 100 years. And it, but the, Terrible thing about all that is there's places that just disappeared off the map, and they were saying, well, there's not going to be anything there because what would theoretically be there if you kept moving south is in the ocean or, or is oh, at yeah. the top of a mountain or, or something like that. So I mean, but realistically, we see a lot less sugar yeah. maples than we did in this area 40 years ago. Um, so so that is um, – so this the question is, is is then sugar maple is, is, was the next example I was, mm-hmm. was okay. going to give. So, so for instance, in, in New England, so they made these maps, and the Forest Service made these maps. They said the climate is going to shift northward, and then it, then it's going to shift the distribution of plants. And, and some of those maps showed that there was going to be no sugar maple in New England at all in, in 100 years or so. And, and there was nothing wrong with that. The reasoning was sound. You, you, you have a relationship between species and climate. You change the climate, and the species are going to change. But then you start to think about, well, the climate changes in complex ways, right? So, so what really controls the distribution of sugar maple? Is it the mean summer temperature or is it the cold temperature in the winter? Or is it some interaction between the cold temperatures in the winter and the mycorrhizal associations with the plants, which are carried by some small mammal? And, and so I guess, I guess there, there was a bunch of reasoning about how communities were going to shift, but the nature of climate change is more complex. And none of our plants are reading the scientific literature, right? So, like, none of them were aware of these maps. So, Sugar Maple was unaware of these maps. And, um, and, and so it's, it, we, we don't really know exactly how it's going to play out, which is why you get excited about talking to people in their yards, because people are going to try different things. And then we're going to see what plants are doing well. For example, like, red maple seems to be everywhere, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it, it's just whenever there's some change in the system, well, we're going to get more red meat. And it, and it seems to be, but I, I think that we get very excited about the idea of, of, of seeing what's going on in people's yards or what's going on in, in urban forests or spontaneous vegetation in, in suburban areas. We're going to learn a lot about, about the forests of tomorrow. Is there, in, in all the surveys and interactions, one of the biggest questions that we get is how do we talk to our neighbors about this? Or is there a way, you know, to make, need to plants more salient to the average homeowner like is there have you found community like better means for com- for communication and talking to people about these these subjects in which they care 
I mean, so, so, and, and as I said, you know, the, we're really interested in improving science communication. And so, and so we talk with communications professionals um, and, you know, and, and in one of our products we had, there's, there's messages, messengers, and what was that? I forget what the three were, yeah. but, but it, it's a much more sophisticated, we have a much, we're, we're taking a much more broad-based approach to understanding how, how information is disseminated from places to places. One thing that, that you certainly see is the, uh, is the early adopter. Right, so we're very interested, and we've been studying some of these National Wildlife Federation certified yards in each of our cities across the country. And so, you know, very, and, and we, see, we also see it with rain gardens. So, if someone in the neighborhood establishes a rain garden or a butterfly garden or some type of native planting and it looks nice, well, then people say, "Gee, that looks nice. How, how did you get that?" And and so, so there's the there's the idea of an early adopter, and that that mm-hmm. generates some discussion, and then information disseminates by example. And again, it's, it's it's analogous to what goes on at home with our children. We can tell our children all kinds of, things, but really they learn by example. And um, and so I, I think and and I think the people who are advocate advocates for native plants, right, like the Wildlife Federation or or you all, are are, are helping to do that, right? Because if someone's going to do it, it's going to look nice, and then it's going to spread. But the, the the thing, and we go back to that, that New York Times article today, was there, there was just really a failure of communication. Mm-hmm. Where like so, if that if, if if that yard had started planting something, and the neighbors were unhappy, they would have said right away. They say, "Come on, can we? You know, I see what you're trying to do. It looks great. Is there some way we could do it so it looks a little neater?" Um, then there could have been some dialogue, and there could have been some adaptation, and there would have been a, a much less expensive, much <laughs> less legal expenses associated with the whole thing. And and so so part of it is is there's a bunch of things we can do by leading by example. Um, but then there's a, just a bunch of things where we need to, to get people to to communicate with each other um, about what they're trying to achieve that I think would, would help a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I and that's, a, that's beyond the scope of a soil scientist guy. Yeah. And one of the things I always think about is with the whole argument behind having a more uh, ecologically conscious yard, you're never going to have – I think most people don't – necessarily care and probably would never care but we need those people to have that kind of yard too and it's uh i guess some of it comes down to the landscaper and if you convince the landscapers that they should be doing this and then the homeowner they don't necessarily know what's in their yard or not but it it could be i don't want to characterize one as good and what is bad but one is better and one is worse um, I always think about that. It's like, do we need everyone to actually care about what's in their yard, or do we just need, need certain the right, people who the are right people to care? putting the stuff in the yards to care? Well, so 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 I think that that's a, a super interesting perspective on it, right? Because our biggest the people who don't know don't care, and uh, are the biggest group of homeowners, right? So in our group of homeowners, like so we we like to, we have we have in our studies we have high impact high input lawns where people are fertilizing and using pesticides about twenty percent of the yards. We have the, the the Wildlife Federation certified yard, which is a relatively small group of people that are very aggressively managing for, for nature. Mm-hmm. But the biggest group are the passive people, yeah. about forty to fifty percent. They don't fertilize, they don't use pesticides, they don't water, they just mow, right? And 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 um, and so those people, they're they're not they're not actively helping to improve, you know, the mm-hmm. support of, of biodiversity in the neighborhood. On the other hand, they're not. 
they're not hurting any, they're not hurting things much either, right? By they're not using a lot of chemicals. Um, but those, that's the really interesting group. What, what, what's going to happen to that group? Now, if you, but a big part of the reason why those people have grass and a few trees and shrubs is because it's easy to maintain. Yeah. Yep. And so if, the, so, so it, this then, we, I'll toss this back to the landscapers. If the landscapers can give me something with more ecological value that's so easy to maintain, and, and, you know, it's got to be easy to maintain. Kids have got to be able to play ball on it. i got to be able to see where the kids are hiding in the bushes. Yep. Yep. You know, there's a bunch of things that people are. And, and so, so, so we have a, I, I think that this question of what are people really hoping to achieve with these yards, either the passive ones or the more aggressively managed ones, and then how can we, how can we help them achieve that and, and also achieve these objectives for, for you know, biodiversity support and it, nature? It's interesting because I I would think where like where our nursery is, there's a lot of larger building lots. There are three acres, five acres, ten acre building lots that you know it was meant to keep the population down and and but it also created a lot more lawn. And those are lawns that most people probably aren't maintaining themselves. Mm-hmm. They're they're at a size where it's like I want this and I want it to look good, but I'm going to hire someone to come in and do it. It's an awful lot of lawn that's just yeah could serve a better purpose and they hate to pay it too i'm thinking (laughs) we have a a neighbor that i'm friends with um lives across the street my brother and i were just talking about the other day he's got an additional what would you say uh their lot is right across the street here it's probably at least three acres of not four or five and they pay someone to mow it and i know it costs a lot of money because i'm friends with a landscaper too who does it (laughs) and he told me how much it costs and it's like oh you're paying all this money if you just had it as a meadow you don't use it it's yeah. it's sitting there. It's unused. You maintain it as a meadow instead. Well, now you're mowing it once, or maybe not even at all, and so your cost goes way down, and your usage is going to remain the same. Maybe it even goes up because you want to walk through it. Um, yeah, I, I think about that a lot, a lot too. So, so the grass in the large yeah. lots just super interesting to look at, right? Because we used to have large debates. There was a lot, there was, this is in, in the 80s, there were large debates about the value of large lots. And so people, they said, we want two acre, four acre, six acre lots because it, because it, it, you know, it limits density, right? You have septic systems and it limits the density, it limits the environmental impact of some types. But the real question is, so some people said, okay, if you've got a, a four acre lot, some people thought that there would be a limit to the amount that people would landscape. So if I got a four acre lot, people really aren't going to landscape more than half an acre of it. So you're going to get, you know, three acres of, of, of unmanaged. That has proved not to be true. Okay. And, and, and some people, like you say, will, will manage that whole piece. Um, and they just don't like the way the metal looks. Or they could, they could convert it to a woodlot or like a, 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 a grove, like a European style forest, you know, where it's, it's trees with, with lawn underneath it. Um, but it definitely comes down to aesthetics because it really is very expensive to maintain a large lot in grass. Most of those pe- people are not maintaining it all that intensively. They're probably mm-hmm. mowing, but they're probably not fertilizing yes. and yeah. that yeah. whole that whole piece. But it's expensive, and you know to what end? You know, and so those people would be very interesting to see what's going to happen with those lots. So the fifty percent that are just kind of like in that that middle range, would you? Is it safe to characterize that they don't care? Like if you were if someone was planting plants, they don't necessarily care if it's native or not, as long as it looks good and is easy to maintain. Yeah, so that is the interesting question, right? So, 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 
I, I don't I don't really know the answer to that. My, okay. my 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 first impulse would be to say yes, they don't care whether it's native or not. But but most and when people do surveys, people are aware that there's a value to native species and they're aware that there's a potential problem from non-native species. So I think most people kind of know that the native species would be better. Um but I don't know I don't know the answer, but it's very fundamental to the whole to the whole discussion here. Is there a inherent value for, for, for planting the, the native species. Would you, just to, to, to kind of summarize, and I know it's it's difficult to summarize something mm-hmm. like this, but things are getting better, not worse. Is that safe to say? Like, at, like our, I don't know. And like <laughs> our goal is yeah. for, for the podcast, like, like a short goal is just to get people to ask questions, to, mm-hmm. to kind of be a little more cognizant of the surroundings understand what's going on, maybe ask the right questions, maybe not rip everything up and plant a, a native meadow, but at least to incorporate some of these things and be cognizant of birds and wildlife and things like that. Like, are we heading in the right direction or is there still a lot of work to do? I mean, again, I tend to have a, a an optimistic view of these mm-hmm. things, but yeah, I think things are getting a lot, a lot mm-hmm. better. And, and and there are some numbers to support it. I mean, just the, the, yeah. the number of people interested in these National Wildlife Federation certified yards has just gone up a lot. The fact mm-hmm. that it's not, it's a whole lot easier for you to find articles about this, yes. yeah. talk yeah. about it on your show, is another sign. And that's, people do that. They do, they, they, they're interested in the, the importance of a topic in society. They track mentions of it in newspaper articles, mm-hmm. right? So someone, you need to get a graduate student to do how many times have native plants been, been mentioned yeah. in the New York Times over the last 50 years. I bet you it's just exploded. And so I do think things are think things are are improving. And you know, they're improving both from the bottom up and from the top down. Right. So so in that there's there that you know from the top down you get these regulatory structures where you have a lot of people who are really concerned about phosphorus pollution of lakes and nitrogen pollution of coastal waters. And so many municipalities have fertilizer bans. Which has forced people to take a different approach to how they manage it. Um, you have a bunch of people who are kind of fighting against these very restrictive homeowner covenants, and so it's giving people more flexibility in what they do. Um, so I think you do have this kind of both from the top down. The regulatory structure is is helping, and then but but the thing that I think is a little more exciting is the kind of bottom up interest mm-hmm. uh, in this. So I I do think it is it's it's getting, we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, and I guess my follow up to that is: Do you think it's happening fast enough? Yeah, who knows? You know, that, that's a, that, that one. That one I don't know. That's a, it's, a, it's, the same, it's the same. It's the same with climate change, right? And yeah. Like, but like, like so. So I would argue that uh, you know, on a good day, that 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 we are making that that we're making this transition. You know, to to, to you know, we moved away from coal, and they and and we're moving towards renewables. Um, many people would say it's not fast enough. Um, it's, it, it would be. The faster, the faster, the better, and I would say the same thing with this. And so I don't know if it's fast enough. It, the, but it would be better if it was fast. Enough. So if if this episode were one of our listeners' first episodes, they just happen to stumble across this, and and it's someone that's just learning about this. What is there one piece of advice you could get give to someone just starting on their journey and thinking about this, or or, or working on their their own properties? Well, so. Again, the thing I'm a little bit obsessed with this because this article in the newspaper and the failure of social cohesion. But it's like it's like think about what you want and then and and remember that one of the things that you want is to get along with your neighbors. 
And so, and so recognize that we're, that we're all connected, that we're all in this mm-hmm. context. And, 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 that, and that's the same with the nature, right? So if, if I'm, if I'm planting wildlife friendly plants, I'm, 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 you know, I'm creating habitat for insects and birds that have an effect over a large area. But what I go at, what, what I do in my yard affects the people in the yards about me. If we really want positive ecological change in our neighborhoods, it's got to be a social ecological change. And that, that I think is the, is, is a message that, that I think our research points to, I hope, I hope it, it gets out to people because really a lot of what we're trying to do is, is to get along with our neighbors and the things that we do with our landscaping can, can make that better or they can make it worse. And you, you'd like to make it better. Well, I think the trickle effect of, mm-hmm. of that article and that lawsuit and how many times this happens in other areas of the country now that they've seen that they can win this kind of lawsuit. I mean, who wants, no one. Like I understand wanting to do what you want to do on your property, but if you're upsetting your entire neighborhood, I can't see that as being a pleasant experience, <laughs> living experience yeah. at all. Like you, you, I would think you would want like-minded people uh, interested in the same thing, and then eventually you're going to have people that just want lawns, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's like it should be interesting where it goes from here. I'd love to talk to you a year from now <laughs> and yeah. see what the ripple effect is of of that lawsuit. Yeah, we should put that on the calendar. <laughs> no, and, and, you know, and also a year is a pretty short period of time. Cause like yeah. lots of other things happen over the course of a year. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. there could be like, who knows, like a pandemic yeah, mm-hmm. or something like that, you know? And, and um, so, but like, you know, it's one of the advantages of being old, right? So, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, yeah. and you can get to see a lot of these things have changed yeah. over time. And, and I think they are moving in the right direction. Um, but we'll see. Awesome. So, I know in the last episode we asked you what your favorite native plant was. I'm only going to ask you if you want to change your answer. <laughs> so last, yes, I do. Right? Okay. I love this question. I've been thinking about it ever since. So now I'm going. Now I'm going with Amalakia. All right. Um, so Amalakia, which is which is we, we call it around here, we call it shadbush, or they call it serviceberry mm-hmm. in the south. And so why is this such a great plant? And this actually was suggested to me by my cousin who worked in landscaping for a long time. Um, so it's a beautiful plant. It flowers super early, right? So you get this white, this white flower very early, and then it makes a nice. The leaves are pretty in the fall, but but there, there's a social ecological. So there's a social context to it as well, right? So we call it shadbush here in the Hudson Valley because it blooms when the shad are coming up the river, coming up the river. They also call it serviceberry in certain places because. When it bloomed, it meant the soil was frozen and you could dig graves, right? So, in, you know, like the bodies would pile up over the winter because you couldn't dig them and you couldn't be graves in frozen ground. And so serviceberry meant, okay, we can have, we can have, we can have burials. And, and to me, that, that idea of, of, yes, there's an ecological value, but a social ecological context is, 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 is just, it's just, it's just, it's so much of our research in, in, in landscaping and native plants is, is, it's, it's a mixture of the social and the ecological and, and I'm locked is a good one. I love a plant with a great story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, pl- and plus, you know, even in the context that there's not too many in, in our area, when you think of understory trees with that kind of value where you're getting flowers, you're getting berries, it's just it, – it, it serves a purpose where not very many other trees will serve yeah. a purpose. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, and I love it. That's a great yeah. choice. Oh yeah, that's a great Definitely. choice. Yeah. So then, so then we we could we could go on, right? So dogwood, right? You go a little farther yeah. south, you get dogwood. Yeah. But then, like, what's it? The ironwood. And there's a mm-hmm. bunch of yeah. those little understory trees that are unsung heroes of the park. Oh yeah. yeah. I love the bark of iron 
ironwood or muscle wood, yeah. you know, because it, yeah. it mimics that look of, of a muscle. It's yeah. We, yeah. Tom and I actually do another podcast called a native plant every day with Tom and Fran. And we get to go into some of those little fun stories or uses mm-hmm. or name meanings that, you know, it's, it's interesting when you find out that the botanical echinacea means hedgehog, you know, and it's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I see that now, yeah. you know, and it's, 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 it's a fun plant li- with a story. Yeah. Yeah. You got a lot. That's what we should have named it. A plant yeah, with a story. Yeah, maybe we should have. Well, there's always time to change it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to wrap it up. I would love to give you a final thought again. So, uh, again, the, the floor is yours to use however you'd like. Um, no, again, I'll just reiterate what, what I said. What the last final thought I said was that, that, um, that, that, that all this stuff has a has an ecological and a social context and that we just need to think about what are we hoping to achieve and one of the things that we're hoping to achieve is to get along with our our neighbors and um, and so and I think that, that that's what I'm hoping is is, is the last thought that it's that mm-hmm. especially in, in in our yards it's it's not just ecology it's a social ecology and, and I think we're going to get better outcomes for our neighborhoods and for our yards and for nature as well awesome. Tom, you want to go or you want yeah, to go? Yeah, mine's uh, something I've probably talked about, I don't even know, going on five times. <laughs> but there's a little cartoon. It's probably 10 years old. There's just a little political cartoon in some newspaper that I saw, and it was at the like the climate change symposium or something like that, and the speaker is talking, and then someone stands up in the crowd and says, well, what if we're making the world a better place and this is all fake? Climate change isn't real, <laughs> and we're doing this for nothing. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It just kind of points out, even if this isn't, what am I trying to say? Even if I'm not saying climate change is real, maybe things, it, it just makes sense to do it regardless. I'm really stumbling through this. <laughs> it makes sense to do this. Even if it's, it ends up being, Hey, you know what? We didn't have to do it. We could have kept using gas guzzling cars and, and mining and doing all this stuff. We're making the world a better place at the end of the day. It's a good thing to do. Um, yeah, that did not come out as good as it did in my head, did it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, my mine is my my inner Libra is is always speaking to me about balance, and there's something to be said. It's it's one thing to know what you want and what you want to accomplish, but if it's if it's upsetting everyone else as well, I'm not saying it's not worth fighting for, but there's always a good balance. It's we always say it's it's great if one person plants a hundred native plants but it'd be better if everyone planted five you know and it's um there's something about that balance and i i agree that the social ecology part of it where it's you it you're all a part of this ecosystem together and you want to have cohesion uh and and everyone working together so it it's it's something to think about and it's if everyone can start thinking about those same things it's all for the greater good yeah I, that's all yeah. I got. Yeah, I'm trying to think how can I reword what I try to say to make it make sense. I know what you're trying to say. It made sense in my head. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a good one, friend. And uh, and yeah, that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you're listening to Dr. Groffman. Um, we have we, all these links on the last one. We're going to have them on on the next one as well. Exactly. So thank you everyone for listening. Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume your music. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. 
ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our ability. And uh, thank you to all the new members of the uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. It's Again, I can't say enough good things about the community that's that's there. Yeah, so we've gotten a lot of compliments on our, our new merch on our, our web store, so, which I, you can find at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. I wore my new thumbprint shirt yesterday. Yeah, a lot actually. of compliments on a thumbprint shirt, um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It looks like a big thumbprint on the front of a T-shirt, yeah. and it's got a tree growing up, and it says Native Hand Plants Healthy Planet underneath. Uh, you can find that and many, many other designs. Um, even Santina Lorsella, who's a former guest from Bowman's Hill, yeah. um, he even said he wants to buy the the plant American Plants shirt with a red, white, and For blue the flag. <laughs> so he can go to Memorial Day picnics and Fourth of July stuff, and he's going to look promote uh, planting American plants and Native plants. And still look patriotic. There you go. So um, you can also listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. But you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, We're getting a lot of listens on YouTube again, I saw. Yeah, So any of those platforms, you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, and it'll play it on your podcast uh, player of choice at home. So I do it all the time just to hear my own voice. (laughs) I thought you did it to drive your wife nuts. Well, that's <laughs> So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, Dr. Groffman. We appreciate you uh, making a second trip and, and talking to us so we could finish this conversation. Um, next episode. Great fun to talk with you all. Uh, we, we enjoyed it so much. The last episode, the feedback, it's actually one of our best first week performances mm, sure. of any of our podcasts. So okay. we, we, were, we were extremely excited about that. So we knew this one would was – People are waiting for this one. So. No, it's just fun. To, it's just it's just fun to talk about this stuff. Oh so, yeah, it is. So next episode, we're going to have a buzz episode. So make sure you tune in then. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.